Hello and welcome to Series 5 of the Training for Influence podcast. In this series, I'm speaking to a selection of people, all of whose life has been positively impacted by frontline professionals. Our aim is to thank and motivate frontline professionals to deliver the very best values-led services. So welcome, Graham. Thank you very much, and thank you for asking me to come on the podcast, Tanya. It's a great pleasure and privilege. Oh, it's my privilege. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So am I. <laughs> I actually watched your TEDx talk yesterday. <laughs> Did you? To find out a bit more about it, because it's actually attached to your email. So I thought, oh, I'm going to watch that. And it's yeah, really, really, we've got a little bit in common in some ways. You know, sort of come from virtually nothing to do something with our lives, I suppose. Yeah, it's certainly when I read a little bit about your story, that's kind of how I felt as well. Do you know, from a position of kind of adversity and then having the opportunity and then I guess what I like to think now is that I'm trying to use my life to help prevent other people suffering in the same way and you're kind of on a very similar journey, aren't you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Certainly for the last few years. You know, I'm helping people to understand that they don't have to have the life that other people have got planned for them as well, I think. And, you know, encouraging people to actually be themselves and have the confidence and the courage to be themselves is something that, and, you know, also helping people who not everyone's as fortunate as me that have the, I don't know, but, but I talk about heart-shaped decisions. You know, I made the heart-shaped decision to leave my family when I was 17. I didn't know what I wanted at the age of 17, but I knew what I didn't want. Yeah. I didn't want what my family and their church had planned for me. Graham, do me a favour. Would you just start off by, uh, I know a little bit about you. I've been following you for a little while, but our listeners don't necessarily know anything about you. So could you just tell people who you are, what you do and why you do it? Yes, so I'm Graham Frost. I'm a professional speaker mainly these days. I speak to groups of young people mainly about my early life and the heart-shaped decisions that I made. And I came up with the idea of heart-shaped decisions a few years ago when I realised that all the major decisions that I have made in my life were made as a result of feelings rather than thoughts. And so I felt about something, I felt I had to get away from something or I felt I had to be closer to something or I had to do, you know, Everything is based around feelings. I was talking to somebody who knows about stuff like this, a friend of mine called David Heiner, about a year ago. And he said, yeah, he said, thoughts come first and then feelings and then actions. I said, not with me. I said, with me, it's the other way around. It tends to be feelings and then thoughts and then actions. I said, and some people get that and some people don't. But some people don't make heart-shaped decisions necessarily. They're probably divided into people who think before they feel. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I'm not like that. And so I just thought to myself, that's something that I wanted to share with the world, really. And then sharing my story, which in a nutshell is that I grew up in a very strict fundamentalist church. And I decided at the age of 17 that it wasn't for me, that that meant me leaving my whole family behind and going off into the world on my own, which I did. And then within two years, I found myself in a young offenders institution because I'd gone from one extreme to the other. And I'd let what I call my stupid gland, which lives in my head, take over. And I had done some things that I'm not particularly proud of. And I'd ended up in custody and achieved my liberty and then lost it again in the space of two years 
fortunately, some professional people in the criminal justice system, and this was in the 1970s, so it's a long time ago, saw something in me, and one of them actually sat me down and had a conversation with me and put me back on the straight and narrow. There were other people involved as well who I'll talk about more as we go through. And then so I came out of Forceville, as it was called in those days, and got back on my feet with the help of other people. And then when I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And that was when the frontline professionals took over again, because obviously I wouldn't be here today without the help of the National Health Service. And I'm as grateful now as I was then for the National Health Service. And I think it's the most wonderful institution. And on all those occasions, I had to make heart-shaped decisions. I had to decide that I wasn't going to let this cancer beat me. I had to decide that I wasn't going to go into a life of crime again. And of course, I had to decide to leave my family. So they're the three big heart-shaped decisions I made in the early part of my life. And that's what I tend to talk about when I do my talks. It's interesting, isn't it, that when you reflect back at 17, although I'm sure there was a lot of, I guess, conflicting thoughts in your life, you were sure on that? It's funny because people have asked me this before, Tammy, and I can still remember almost as if it was yesterday, leaving my family's home in South London where we lived at the time, and walking down the road. And I had absolutely no doubts in my mind at all. And I just felt like the completely the right thing to do. I knew that I just had to get away. It was then or never. There was no going back. I talked about it in my talks that I do. I just felt that it was the, the only option I had open to me if I was going to have the life that I wanted to have. And I didn't even know what that was. But I knew that I had to get away from that restrictive upbringing that I had. It's interesting because when I look back now at my time as a young person, I became homeless at 15. So I left, I guess, my family at 15. Yeah. And it's a little bit, a little bit like what you're saying in the sense of, although mine wasn't a choice, I look back now and actually very much believe that that was the start of my new life. Do you know, I wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't go back and change it. And even to an extent, I look around and see my family and see what I could have or I would have been as well. And it's interesting because although I don't think I would ever choose for anybody to be in that position or to go back and repeat it, I can mm. see how that decision at that young age to keep going and not give up and how that kind of aligns with exactly what you're saying now was the start of, I guess, me being where I am today. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, it's funny because I, I never had a plan when I left at all. You know, I left home, as I say, at you know, the age of 17, and I went to work in a pub. And I've never worked with, you know, obviously, I think I've been in a pub once or twice. I wasn't supposed to go to the pub. Well, I was too young to go to a pub, but I had been to the pub quite a few times before I was left home. But strictly forbidden from doing that, but that just made it more interesting. <laughs> you know, when you're told you can't do things, when you're young, it makes you want to do it more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know that with my children now. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes that carries on into older age with me as well. You know, sometimes you can't do that, Graham. You know, what are you doing? You being a professional speaker, you know, what, what, what's that all about then? And some people did say that, but I didn't listen to them. I listened to the ones that said, yeah, do it. Do you think, Graham, do you think that's something that people who have been through adversity and kind of had to fight throughout their life, do you think that's something that we have in common, that actually as soon as somebody says we can't do something, immediately there's something in us that says, OK, now watch me do it. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I've got a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who comes from a um, very poor background. His parents came over from Pakistan with nothing, and he grew up quite poor. He wanted to be an accountant, and uh, he was told that under those circumstances, was he's going to be able to be an accountant, what a ridiculous idea. He's now got one of the most successful accountancy businesses in the east of England. You know, another thing that I tell people is that, you know, you can have as many fresh starts as you want. Yeah, absolutely. And you can decide to change your life at any point that you want to as well. I can see why your talks would be so powerful, particularly for young people, because I think at a period in your life when you are young and you feel like you don't have the experience that everybody talks about, you have to make decisions still. And you have to determine what you're going to make those decisions on. So actually, if you're empowering people to really have faith in themselves and have faith in their decision making, I can see why, why as a motivational speaker, that would work so well. The more I think about it and the more I thought about it, you know, everything we do in life is based on making a decision, isn't it? Shall I have green tea or lemon and ginger tea or ordinary tea this morning? There's a decision, you know, and I happen to be drinking lemon and ginger tea at the minute because I like it. <laughs> it makes me feel good about myself. Uh, I won't tell you about my Diet Coke then, no? <laughs> <laughs> They're all very different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Graham, let's go back to your story a little bit. There's a few key things there. Tell us a little bit more about when you were a young person and you're showing your age because you're talking about Borstal. But tell us about the workers in Borsal. What were the frontline professionals like? Were they all good, all bad, a mixture of both? What made the difference for you? Well, for me, there was two people. There was two of the officers. They were all male. I don't remember there being any female staff there at all, actually. It was a boys' Borsal. I don't think we saw a woman apart from when we had visitors. But there were two gentlemen, actually. One of them was Mr Breakwell. He was in charge of the kitchen. And I used to work in the kitchen and the dining hall area because I'd worked in hospitality before I went in there. So that's where they put me. And he used to leave big old-fashioned radio in the kitchen. He used to leave it there for the weekends when he wasn't there. And I tuned it to a radio station. I found some amazing music. And he knew I was doing this. I wasn't really supposed to do it. He knew I was doing it, but he let me do it because that was my little... I used to go down to the kitchen on a Saturday morning and clean the kitchen thoroughly on my own. That was my little little job. And uh, listen to this amazing soul and funk music that I got into in the sort of mid-70s. And I'm still into that sort of music. And the DJ was called Robbie Vincent, and I still listen to him now. He's in his 70s now, and he's on a station called Jazz FM. He knew I was doing that. He would come in every Monday and say, who's been tuning the radio? He said, you frosty. You know, I said, and he knew I was doing it, but he said, I'm okay with it. He said, if it's giving you pleasure, that's fine. And the other one was Mr. Taylor, and uh, we used to call him Tinker Taylor. And he was another decent man who was an officer in the ball store. And um, just to give you a picture of it, they didn't used to wear uniforms, so they used to wear civilian clothes. They weren't like they were officers exactly. And when I was in there, I was mocking about for a little while with a guy who actually had trouble because I was, I was still finding myself gravitating towards people that I thought would protect me because I was very wet behind the ears at the age of 18, 19 still, and very, very naive. And this chap, I thought, you know, I thought he was a bit of a rough house. He would actually protect me from any trouble, although I never really got into any trouble while I was there. And, of course, he used me as somebody who was seen as one of the sort of better people, I suppose. I wasn't a real hardened criminal. 
And one day this chap actually beat somebody up really badly and he was shipped out of the ball store. I never saw him again. And I was taken into the punishment block because they thought, as I was this chap's little mate, I must have had something to do with it. And I hadn't even known about it. And uh, I was terrified. They let me out after one night. I went back to the dormitory, which is where we used to sleep with about 18 or 19 of us in a dormitory. And Mr. Taylor came to see me. He said, right, he said, Frosty, he said, I want you to come and talk to me. He said, why do you think you're still here? He said, because you could be out of here by now. This was after about just coming up for a year. He said, why do you think you're still here? And I said, because I'm still mucking about with the wrong people. He said, yes. He said, well, he said, I want you to go and sit on your bed and think about what you want your life to be. He said, because uh, I don't want to see you back in here again. He said, you're not a criminal. He said, we have lads that come in here and we know there's not much we can do for them. He said, but you're not like that. You've got something about you. Get yourself sorted out. And I went and sat on my bed and did what he told me to do. And I thought, right, I'm just going to make my... We used to have an expression in Borstal called keeping your nose clean. And uh, it was a sort of kind of East End of London expression. So I kept my nose clean for the next uh, few weeks. And before I knew where I was, I was actually going home, being released, because I'd actually listened to him. And so, you know, I've, I've always thought about him as a frontline professional that helped me, both of those men. That's interesting, because you're talking here, what, did you say, in the 70s? Yes. So we're talking a while ago, and you're still holding both of those people within your heart? And there were others, you know, there were others. I had two probation officers going around about that time of my life. One of them, I can't remember his name, but he was a very nice chap and he was in South London. He actually invited me around to his house for dinner with him and his partner one night because, you know, he knew that I was a bit lost. I don't suppose a probation officer would be allowed to do that in the 21st century, but, you know, there, there were different times. And then the probation officer I had when I was actually in Borstal, her name was Marilyn. And I often wonder what happened to her, because she'd still be around somewhere. And she was absolutely fantastic and really supportive and used to come all the way from London up to Cambridgeshire to see me in the Borstal every... First, she probably came about four or five times while I was in there because she knew I didn't have any family coming and visiting. I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Training for Influence. We're on a mission to help frontline services easily access quality values-led training. That's why we developed our Train the Trainer program based on the book, Transform Your Training. We run four intakes a year and each applicant is selected based on their current experience level and values. Just like our methodology, we've designed the learning to be personalized, interactive, inspirational, and suitable for both new and experienced trainers to help them develop and deliver sessions either face-to-face -face or live online. If you're interested in applying for our 12-week blended learning qualification, then please do get in touch. All of our contact details can be found in the show notes. You talk about these people with real affection, you know, yeah. and they were frontline professionals. Do you think, Graham, that any of them remember you? I, I don't know. I would be surprised if they didn't, to be quite honest, because um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't suppose the chap that invited me around for dinner did that for all his clients. I don't know. I think, funnily enough, I remember there were two police officers who I got involved with uh, a life of petty crime with a friend of mine. I got kind of led into it in a way. 
and there were two detectives who were kind of I got charged. I've actually got my um, DVS form in front of me at the minute, and I think I've got about seven charges on there. And we were charged with about seven different things, all to do with theft. They actually liked me because I was never, I always used to put my hands up and say, yeah, I did it. You know, there's no point in trying to get out of it. You know, it's a fair cop gov kind of thing. And they were actually quite friendly. They, you know, I was certainly never, never, ever treated badly by the police in those days. It's interesting because when you're talking about kind of all of these different people here, um, some of them, and like the probation officer, for instance, probably, as you've said, it was a little bit out of the ordinary, so he'll probably remember you. But actually, the things that you're saying, you haven't said anything yet that is, you know, anything magic that they're doing. What you're talking about here is just genuine care for another human being and doing your job or their job in the best kind of kindest way possible yes. do you think there was anything extra special about what they were doing or or what was it that connected you to them well i think it just was that kindness i think you know when i look back on that time in my life there were people who showed me kindness i mean one thing that happened to me at one point was i had at the age of 18 i think i was about 18 I was homeless for one night. I slept on Victoria Station in London. I woke up in the morning and, you know, you've been homeless yourself. You don't actually wake up in the morning. You kind of cat that. I was on a bench on Victoria Station and I remember sitting up and thinking, right, I'm not doing that again. What am I going to do? How am I going to get myself out of this mess? And I decided I was going to walk down Victoria Street and see if I could get a job in any of the pubs down there. And so I just went down Victoria Street and I talk about this in the talks that I do. I had long hair and I had, I probably looked a little bit disheveled to say the least, because, you know, when you slept roughly the night, you don't look at your best. And I walked into one pub and it turned out to be, it's a pub called The Albert in Victoria Street, which is still there. And it's where MPs go, because it's not very far from the House of Commons. And MPs go there, they have a restaurant upstairs. It's a little bit posh. And they looked at me, you know, looked down their noses at me, and they were all in nice uniforms. They still hope we haven't got any jobs in here, you know. And then I went to another pub around the corner, and the Irish landlord said to me, he said, no, he said, I don't need anybody. He said, but if you go down that road there and turn left, and there's a little pub along there on the left, so if you go in there, I think he's looking for somebody. So I did go in there, and I went in there, and I met a guy called John Daveron, who actually took me in and gave me a job off the street. And I was able to actually trace his wife a few years ago. He'd unfortunately passed away, but I was able to go over to Ireland where she retired back to and see her and thank her for what her and her husband did for me. But they actually really enjoyed helping young people who were down on their luck. And they did it for quite a few other people as well. I love this, Graham. I love the fact that everything that you're saying, what's quite lovely is, for me, it's just doing two things. So, you know, you were talking about the fact that you just listened to my TED Talk, and my TED Talk is called Why Kindness Makes All the Difference. Yeah. And then you're talking about kind of all of your heart-shaped decisions. And what I love about your story as you're telling it is that you're talking to your heart-shaped decisions, and then you're, at each point, you're giving examples about how kindness made the difference. It's yeah, like yeah. this serendipitous meeting of opinions for me and you. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know, even in, when I was having the cancer treatment when I was sort of in my early 20s, I mean, I, that was a very sort of challenging time, to say the very least. It was terrible, but... I can still remember two or three of the nurses at the Royal Marsden Hospital in Sutton, in South London, who, if it hadn't have been for them, I don't think I could have got through it. 
they were just so caring and understanding and put up with me and you know i was i was it was a horrible horrible experience chemotherapy in those days i mean it still is for some people you know a friend of mine unfortunately passed away from cancer in december you know i would go and sit with him when he was having his chemotherapy it's still not a pleasant experience but you know those people were absolutely fantastic you know and i had some heart problems about two and a half years ago and i went into hospital in peterborough and uh, everybody there was absolutely fantastic. I made a point of feeding that back to the um, chief executive of the hospital because I think kindness deserves to be recognised. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that sometimes the British public, we're very good at complaining, but we're not always the best at saying thank you or really kind of recognising somebody for something that they've done that's made a difference. And that's one of the reasons for this podcast, really, is because we have, I want to say over the pandemic, really expected our frontline professionals to step up. But actually, that, that isn't true. The sectors were really, really under pressure before the pandemic. And actually, the pandemic has put this level of kind of increased expectation that if I'm very honest, I really didn't think anybody, any individual frontline professional had anything left in them to give because I've been working within the sector for the last 20 years. And everybody I know literally gives everything that they've got and sometimes to their own detriment as well. And pandemics come along and people have been asked to really kind of draw deep. And initially, the country as a whole, you know, general public, everybody was out there being grateful and thankful. And now we're, what, 15, 16 months on? And to an extent, some of that gratitude has waned a little bit because we're all a bit tired and fed up of it all and such like. And frontline professionals are people like you and me, aren't they? Do you know, they have families, they have difficulties, traumas, conflicting priorities, all of those type of things. And they have the ability to do what you're talking about here and save somebody's life or help somebody find a new kind of path on their life. Yeah. Do you have any ideas of how we can help the frontline professionals kind of recognise their importance a bit more? One of the things that I think would probably work, you know, I would love to do this, actually. I was only thinking about it the other day. You know, I would actually love to go in and do some talks for NHS staff about how NHS professionals help me. And to actually, you know, I would be happy to go in and do that and thank them for everything that they've done. I don't think they get appreciated at all. You know, I think that kind of thing is kind of left. It's always somebody else's job to show recognition and appreciation. And I used to run a team of customer service professionals years ago when I worked on the railway. And none of my team ever went home at night without being thanked for what they'd done. Yeah, it's amazing the difference a little bit of thanks gives, isn't it? You know, it's amazing the difference. And it's interesting that you talk about kind of NHS because within the NHS, not everybody is frontline, but everybody is key. So it's important that we kind of recognise. I know when we deliver training at Tay, quite often we'll deliver to frontline charities different services from homelessness to substance misuse and such like. And there's quite often somebody who's called the administrator who sits on the front desk. Actually, they're also the first person that people coming in to use that service see. And actually the support and the recognition and the difference a kind smile and a welcome makes can be all of the difference between somebody engaging with that service or turning around and walking out again. Yeah. People tend to treat other people like they're treating themselves. 
you know, and I've worked in a company where we as members of the team were actually treated very, very well. And so, you know, the customer service kind of happened because we, we actually felt empowered to deliver good service and that kind of thing. I've also experienced the opposite where, you know, we were taken for granted and, you know, it was all about, you know, how much money we took and everything else. And we've never really shown any appreciation. I know which place have the best reputation for customer service. Customer service actually starts behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I really couldn't. You know, with the training for influence methodology, what we're trying to do, and it's my kind of creative solution, is we're helping facilitators be the very best they can be, love what they're doing, love facilitating training, all connected to frontline delivery, so that they go into the room or the virtual room at the moment, and they deliver the very best kind of heart-shaped training, you know, really emotional and connected to the frontline training, so that the delegates, they then get the best training experience they can have. They learn new skills and they get their emotional resilience rebuilt because then they go exactly like you just said then and they deliver the very best services to vulnerable and complex people on the front line. So it's exactly like you said, it's kind of that filtering down, isn't it? And it's the same for frontline professionals. If they're valued by their team in particular and by their management and their colleagues, they're feeling good about the work that they're doing, then they're far more likely to be delivering a better service on the front line. There's actually some stats, I don't know if you've seen, but there's been some studies done, going back to the NHS again, there's been some studies done that actually 30% of the NHS is run on goodwill. Do you know, is run on people staying back those few extra minutes, is run on people passing that extra little bit of kindness. So if you can even scientifically evidence it, for me, it says everything. I think it's probably more than that. So, Graham, tell us how people can find out about you and how you would like people to get in touch with you. Do you know if they want to hear a little bit more about what you do, if they want to hear some more about your heart-shaped decisions, or if they would like you to come and talk at one of their events? Because I know that you've got your own podcast and website and things, haven't you? Yes, I have. Well, if you want to contact me, I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Graham Frost, at LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, which is at Brave Frost. I'm also, you can ring me. I'm on 077-616-317. I quite like having phone calls with people. People don't do that very much now. Graham, you're the first person to ever share their phone number on a podcast. On mine, oh, anyway. Really? Okay, I'm not, I do it quite often. I don't mind if people pick up the phone. And that's what we used to have to do before we had email. You can also email me at graham at grahamfrost.com. And yeah, I do have a podcast. I've also just written a short ebook about heart shaped decisions and how I came up with the whole idea of it. And it includes a bit of my story. So I'll, I'll send that over to you, Tammy. As, uh, if anybody's interested in that, they can have a copy. That's a free little ebook, only 25 pages, just quite a quick read, just to get an idea a bit about my story and what I do. Yeah, that's perfect. After all of our podcasts, each of our guests has a page on our website. So what we'll do is we'll put all of your details there. We'll pop them in the show notes as well. And then if you'd like, we can put the link to the ebook there as well. So it can send people straight over to you to be able to find that really easily as well. Oh, brilliant. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. No, that's great. Well, I really appreciate your time, Graham. I wonder if you would just finish off by just sharing a few kind of words of wisdom and kind of your thoughts to anybody that's working in a frontline profession about what makes the difference. 
Well, I think for me, it's about emotional connections with people and taking the time to understand people and to sort of try and get in the same space as them and understand where they're coming from and listen. And listening is very, very important. I think somebody said to me earlier this morning, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason and we have to do more listening than speaking. And that's something that I'm still learning. Yeah, I think it is to understand that even if people don't show appreciation, that you are appreciated. And, you know, there are many, many people out here who absolutely value the work that you do as frontline professionals, you know, in whatever service you're providing. And I'm certainly one of them. And thank you to all the people in the probation service and the National Health Service, without whom I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Well, I think that's the absolute perfect ending, Graham. Just thank you. And I guess look around and see those butterfly wings, you know, because actually, Graham, by those frontline professionals helping you, saving your life or sending you off on a different journey when you were younger, the butterfly wing effect is that you've been able to go out there and help other people. And the people that you've helped will be out there helping other people as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That, that is exactly what I do. I would like to create, I suppose, a group of people. I think I've already done it to a certain extent, but I want to do more of it. People who actually care about other people, because I think that is a skill that is it's still out there. But I think people are encouraged to think of themselves first a lot. And I'll never be one of those people, put it that way. Yeah. Well, if you haven't read it already, I'm going to recommend a book called Think Like a Monk. And my favourite chapter in it, the whole book's good, but some of it you might be aware of, some of you might not be aware of. It's got a lot in there about mindfulness and such like, which I'm only just learning about. But there is a chapter in there right near the end, and it's my favourite chapter. It's called something like Life is Service. And it talks a lot about how if we give to other people, that is giving to ourselves. And it really, really resonated with me. You know, it talks specifically about how kindness comes from within, that it's reciprocal in its nature. And it just really kind of spoke to what you're saying there about people looking out for each other. And I think for our frontline professionals, it's a vocation. It's not a job. So the vast, vast majority of people working in that role have gone into that profession because like you they believe it's really important absolutely teachers come into that category as well you don't go into teaching for the money you go into teaching because you want to help young people yeah absolutely well thanks so much for your time today graham i'm really looking forward to getting this podcast out there and then directing all of our listeners in your direction thank you very much bless you (laughs) thanks graham thanks so much for listening to this podcast today We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember... Be kind to yourself, it makes all the difference.